0: You're listening to The Writers' Forum. I'm your host, Mike Toos, and today I'll be speaking with author Stephanie Kane about her new book, True Crime Redux. Stephanie's written seven crime novels, and her novels have won the Colorado Book Award for Mystery and the Colorado Authors' League Award for the genre fiction. She also belongs to the Mystery Writers of America, the Rocky Mountain Fiction Writers, and the Colorado Authors' League. Welcome to the show, Stephanie.
1: Thanks for having me, Michael.
0: Well, before we turn to your new book, let me ask you this. You've written a bunch of crime novels. What is it about the crime novel genre that attracted you?
1: Well, I you know, I grew up with uh, Twilight Zone and Alfred Hitchcock Mystery Hour, so I guess I've always been kind of a mystery nut. And, you know, I, I think uh, I also subscribed to Alfred Hitchcock Mystery Magazine, so I was really steeped from a young age in the short-form mystery uh-huh. genre. And, you know, the, I think that, that that sort of subliminally uh, <laughs> reached into my, in my sense of dramatic structure and stuff like that. Uh-huh. So when I started writing, it, it seemed a natural thing to do. Okay.
0: Well, now, you, you may still be a lawyer, but I know you practice law for some period of time. Um, what's the difference, if any, between the type of legal writing you would have done and then the crime novel writing that you did?
1: They have nothing in common.
0: <laughs> okay. Well, you know, um, Go ahead.
1: Uh, I was just going to say that you, you know as a lawyer yourself that, well, actually, they do have something in common because legal writing is pretty analytical. And the way I approach structuring books is fairly analytical. So I, I guess it's unfair to say that they have nothing in common.
0: Well, it's interesting that you say that. I had an author on uh, David Ellis, uh, who is a judge, actually in Illinois. As you may perhaps even know him. Uh, and when I asked a similar question, he said, "Well, they're identical." And I said, "How's that?" <laughs> and, and I said, "How's that?" And he said, "Well, as a lawyer, you're telling a story." And as a writer, you're telling a story, which I thought was rather interesting. i probably lean more towards your, uh, your conclusion there.
1: Anyway. Well, actually, mm-hmm. you know, I, pra- I practice two different kinds of law. Uh-huh. I was a corporate lawyer, and, and so when you first asked the question, that was naturally what I thought of, because that's what I spent most of my legal career doing. Uh-huh. But then I, then I switched to litigation, and that is
0: yeah. storytelling. Yeah, that is. Yeah. All right, well, let's talk about your new book, True Crime Redux. It's a book about the murder of your former mother-in-law, Betty Fry, and the reopening of the Cole case related to that years later. For listeners that may be unfamiliar with that or with your first book, Quiet Time, which had to do with the, uh, with the murder, give us a little bit of the details of the murder and when it occurred.
1: Uh, well, the murder occurred almost exactly 50 years ago in June 1973. I was a sophomore at CU, the University of Colorado in Boulder, living with my fiance in a little student apartment on on the hill, which is like the student section of town. Uh And uh, the morning of the murder, Betty actually called our apartment, which was a total surprise since she disapproved of the upcoming wedding. It was two weeks before I was to marry her son. And so she called that morning. We had a brief conversation. And then a few hours later, I saw her husband, my soon to be father in law, um, at the karate studio where my fiance was teaching that morning. And so I, I was one of the last people to speak to her before she was killed and one of the first people to see her killer her Mm. husband that morning, but actually the day really stuck in my mind. uh He was dressed very inappropriately for the weather. It was sweltering out and he was wearing like a dark shirt and and he had a very prominent bruise on his forehead. So, um, you know, and his excuse for coming to Boulder, which was 40 miles from where they lived was that he was looking for A place for our wedding rehearsal dinner, which was very, very strange since they didn't approve of the wedding and we weren't even sure they were going to attend. So naturally that day, you know, really stuck in my mind. Um, We had a short visit with him and then we drove to Denver to pick up my fiance's first suit ever. It was going to be his (laughs) wedding suit. And when we got home, the phone was ringing and said, you know, come Come back home quickly! Something terrible has happened, and you were, and the terrible thing that had happened was that his mother was bludgeoned to death.
0: Yeah, yeah,
1: in their garage.
0: Yeah, you were. As I read the book, or as I read the book, you were also a little concerned that your involvement with the son and the marriage and some other issues may have played a part in this. At least initially, you had that concern, right?
1: Yes, I did, because as, as I said, that you know there was a lot of disapproval of of our upcoming wedding. Mm-hmm. And uh you know, I just I just had this terrible sense that somehow my entering that family had upset some fragile balance and had led to, you know, this this brutal explosion of rage yeah. in their garage that morning. Yeah. So I, I just kinda had that sense in my head yeah. and it you know Yeah I not- never really got over
0: that yeah and I, you know obviously as I read the book I started to get a sense of the fragility of the family and we'll talk a little bit about that talk about something and I guess for for listeners obviously since you're writing a second book 50 years later uh, about a cold case the murder was not initially solved even though suspicion fell upon the husband Duane. what are some of the things that and you point this out in your book that the cops or the DA's missed or overlooked that might have helped solve the crime initially.
1: Well, for one thing they never interviewed me, which, mm-hmm. you know, I <laughs> I you know, it it's not strange in in retrospect. I mean, I was just, you know, the the fiance of the son and what did I know? And so they they missed an opportunity to find out um strange things about Dwayne's behavior that morning, you know, that that right. wouldn't have come in otherwise. Um they did focus on him rather quickly because the, the crime scene was staged as a burglary. And so, you know, the theory, the initial theory was that, that Betty had surprised burglars in her house and they had, you know, beaten her to death, you know, and, and, yeah. and run off without taking any loot. But the loot itself was very interesting because it had been collected in trash barrels in the garage where her body was found. And the most interesting thing in the in these trash barrels was, first of all, the nature of the loot was stuff that no burglar would ever, you know, would ever gather up.
2: Right, right.
1: Um, And because it was like things like cheap appliances and and among all that stuff, you know, kitchenware, things that no burglar would ever steal because they can't fence them. You know, they're just worthless. Right. Um, And among that loot were three clocks. And this is back in the days when when most clocks were electric clocks, Mm -hmm. you know, you plugged them in the wall and um, two of them were like alarm clocks. One was a radio alarm, uh, you know,
2: that played music,
1: all that. Anyway, um, the clocks, when they had been pulled out of the wall by the would be burglar, um, stopped, you know, at the moment they were unplugged. Yeah. So one clock read 11.22, another read 11.23, another read 11.27, and that gave the cops a very good idea of when the burglar had been in the house and and when Betty was killed. And then the other thing that happened was, so they they knew that, you know, the burglar was active at around 11.30 in the morning, you know? Yeah. And uh, then as the cops were canvassing the neighborhood, a boy surfaced who had come to the Fry house that morning looking for the younger Fry son, who was 13 years old. And this boy had, had rung the Fry doorbell. And after a couple of rings, Dwayne Fry, my father-in-law, answered the door. And um, this, you know, he, the cop said, well, when did you come to the door? And the little boy said, well, it was 1135. And So they go to Dwayne and they say, well, you know, this kid says you were at the house at 1135 and first Dwayne denies it, then he says, oh, he came an hour earlier. So they go back to the kid and they ask the kid, you know, how can you be so sure that you came to the door to the Fry House and saw Dwayne at 1135? And the kid says, oh, that's easy. I had just finished watching the monkeys on TV. <laughs> and yeah. I had turned the channel for my brother to, um, to watch Sherlock Holmes. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. And
1: they, they go to the TV guide. And, of course, you know, the monkeys are over at 1130 and Sherlock Holmes comes on. And it's like a two-minute walk, you know, from the kid's house to the Fry House. Yeah. So, yeah. so th- those things, you know, made them really focus on Dwayne, and he was actually indicted for first-degree murder in 1973.
2: Right. but, but And then mm-hmm, go ahead. the
1: charges were dropped yeah, right before yeah. the trial, and we were never really told why.
0: Well, talk to us a little bit about Dwayne. I mean, in reading the book, um, you know, he was an odd combination, at least to me. He was a follower of Ahn Rand, or seemed to be anyway. But he also had some mental health issues, right? He suffered from depression. Um, tell us what well, made this he, guy well, tick.
1: Yeah. Dwayne did not suffer from depression. His oh. wife Betty did. Okay. All um, right. But Dwayne was a very, very tightly wound engineer. He worked at Martin Marietta. Um, he had recently been laid off, so there was, you know, some tension in the family over that. Uh, Betty had gone back to work so that she could, you know, they could have money to put their kids through college and all of that. So it was a very unstable time in the family. And Dwayne was just this, you know, he he was an efficiency expert. And his kids called him Mr. Work the Problem.
2: Mm.
1: So, you know, when Mr. Work the Problem takes a 40-mile unplanned trip on the morning his wife is killed in order to establish an alibi, it's totally out of character for somebody who, who seems to be such a control freak.
0: Well, you, you describe him in the book, uh, and some phrases that I'm sure have meaning in, in the crime world, but I, wasn't un- I was unfamiliar with, as having, quote, a free temper, close quote, and being a, quote, right man, close quote. T- t- talk to us about what those things are.
1: Okay, well, the free temper is actually the way the lead cop in 1973 described him. Okay. And that was on the basis of, of interviewing him. Mm-hmm. You know, b- before he was even a, a suspect, you know, he noticed certain things about his personality that he could, you know, he, he, he seemed to be like almost remote, you know, and, and very controlled. And then he would flare up.
0: Okay. And
1: right. when I was starting, when I was researching true crime redux after the cold case was over, and I had all of the records and everything. I, I still couldn't get a bead on Dwayne, even though I had seen him, you know, I'd known him, I'd seen him in many settings. I just, I really wanted to understand what made him tick. So the first thing I did was I went to the DSM, you know, mm-hmm.
0: the, yeah. diagnostic
1: standard, manual. Uh-huh. you know, psychiatric thing. And, and I found these definitions that all sounded, you know, they're all familiar. They're familiar to all of us pathological narcissist you know some things like that right and it, to me it was it just seemed it, it clearly fit his personality but it seemed too generic
2: mm-hmm.
1: it sort it sort of caught the, this sense of personal grievance that he had and rage but it, it seemed to miss a dynamic and and so I started looking through um, forensic treatises and I came across a reference to something called The Right Man. And this was actually originated by a Canadian novelist um, named A.E. Van Voigt, mm-hmm. who wrote a, a book called The Violent Man. And, and, he, and he, he researched men like Dwayne as, as character studies for a book that he planned to write. And he ended up writing, a you know, not just, the, the fiction book that he wrote, but also a little, an interesting little study of men like that. And that was picked up by a British historian named Colin Wilson. And in a book called A Criminal History of Mankind, he, ex, he expands on Van Voigt's work. And what he came up was, with was a man who feels that whatever he wants to do is justified. Mm, okay. And his flashpoint is his wife. And the interesting where this goes beyond the the you know DSM the psychiatric treatises is is that the, the the relationship between him and his wife obviously starts with his relationship with his mother who becomes who's like kind of his ally antagonist and that's a role that women will play throughout his life yeah but what's interesting about this notion of the right man is that there is a certain irony in it because the, the right man's downfall is that he's got to, he, he has to destroy this woman that he idealizes uh-huh. by controlling her, but then he can't live without her. Yeah. So if, if she li- leaves him or he destroys her, he goes into a self-destructive spiral. And that actually is exactly what happened to Dwayne Fry. Wow. After, after he killed his wife. So yeah. it, it seemed to really, you know, it's interesting to find that in, in literature and not in some psychiatric treatise. But it, it put him into a, a certain perspective for me. And it, since his life played out that way, it just seemed to fit him to a T. Wow.
0: Well, talk to me then about Betty. Um, and that my, again, my memory of Betty is that she had some mental health issues as well, right?
1: Yes. Betty had... Um, manic depression okay and she was treated with shock treatments and and when i came into the family lithium had had just been developed as a drug and and there were difficulties you know titrating the doses and stuff but she was being treated with lithium and there was so much shame in both sides of the family around mental illness that betty's children including my fiance, who became my husband, had no idea that their mother was sick. Wow! You know, and uh, of course, Dwayne had tremendous resentment over Betty's illness, and he felt that having to care for her at various points had had cheated him of. You know, he could have been a contender. You know, he, <laughs> right, he could right, have, right. You know, well, I'm he, curious he much more success than he did.
0: I'm curious about that though, about Betty, though. Do we do you know if she had this condition when Dwayne met her or if this is something that developed through the way that dwayne treated her
1: well typically conditions like that mm-hmm. um, develop in your early 20, late teens early twenties right so I think and there was there was other evidence of mental illness in her family. her father committed suicide right and when he did that People in her family were were so concerned that it would set Betty off that they they didn't even tell her that that's how he died. Yeah. So she was she had a certain fragility, but I doubt that that was apparent when Dwayne married her. But much later, when I was researching true crime redux, one of the people I consulted was a guy named Howard Morton who started an advocacy group for. Um, the families of cold case victims and stuff, and I, I had some long conversations with him, and he told me that in some of the domestic homicides that that he was involved with with this advocacy group that he founded, that there were there were circumstances where the men actually made their wives sick,
0: sure. clinically yeah. ill,
1: through their treatment. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean, it, it makes sense. So, yeah. so I think that he definitely exacerbated her, you know, her condition. Condition. Um,
0: okay. All right. Well, you you mentioned this, and it was actually one of my next questions. Were you aware that there was a family history of, let's just say, mental health issues when you married Doug?
1: Oh no, no. Okay. I mean, Doug wasn't even aware of it.
0: Okay. Okay.
1: I mean, they kept they kept it. There was such shame around it that they they just. They kept it a secret.
0: But he ultimately, your your ex-husband, ultimately also had some mental health issues, right?
1: Yes, yes.
0: Okay. Okay. All right. So let's, one more thing about the past, and then we'll talk about the uh, reopening. In talking about the family uh, as a whole, when you talked about the sisters and another son, Greg, you write that, quote, families are also like crime scenes, close quote. What, what What did you mean by that? It really struck me.
1: Well, I think that what I the context that you're talking about, yeah. mm-hmm. I, I I related it to this notion that when you when you're in a crime or in a crime scene, you take something of that away with you. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, it, it, it's a you know it's it's a forensic kind of truism, and it struck me that when you enter a family, even if I was in Doug's family for nine years, the nine years that we were married,
2: uh-huh. and
1: I, I took something of, of that family away with me yeah. when I left that family. You know, you don't, you don't walk out of a crime scene clean, and you don't walk out of a family clean. No, I mean, y- it, it yeah. affects you, yeah, you know?
0: And, yeah, and one thing that struck me was, <clears throat> and of course we're all relaying it back to our own circumstances, but and that's what makes this a good book and a universal theme, Is that in families there are some things that are unsolved some things that are unknown and um, that's how it struck me when I first read it but I like your explanation as well All right. so the case gets reopened in 2006 and 2007 at that point in time Doug is now living I believe in Florida correct with his new wife
1: you mean Dwayne
0: Dwayne I'm sorry yes Yes, Dwayne Um, and but not all the family members wanted the case to be reopened right
1: No family members wanted the case to be reopened.
0: Do do you have any sense of why that was how they felt?
1: Well, I can all, you know, I I mentioned this guy, Howard Morton, and what he, part of his work with this advocacy group that he formed was to reach out to families who, you know, whose family members had, had been, killed in cases that were cold cases, right? and he would reach out to them and say, would you like our help in having the case reopened? And I asked him, well, you know, how many families wanted you to do that? And he said, almost all of them. And the ones that did not want the case to be reopened, he had a strong suspicion that it was because family members were involved in the, in the homicide.
2: Yeah,
0: yeah. Well, and that may make sense. So what is the effect? I mean, did you have a chance to see what the effect of reopening the case was on Doug and his sisters and, and a brother?
1: Well, they were so apparently so angry at me, according to the cold case cops, that, right. that the cops got a protective order, you know, preventing them from contacting me.
0: Oh, goodness. Okay.
1: So, you know, they were they were very angry at me um but i have to tell you that the most gratifying thing about writing and publishing true crime redux Uh is that since it's come out just in the past couple of weeks i've gotten two emails that just meant everything to me as a writer and as a human being um and one came from the um son of betty's closest sister to whom i dedicated the book right. thanking me for writing it thanking me on behalf of his family for giving them answers they had been looking for for 50 years wow and then the other email was even more unexpected and that came from the grandson of the of dwayne's second wife the woman he married after he killed betty and he, too. I mean, he, as you know, from reading the book, I don't yeah, want to give yeah, too much right, away. Right. But as you know, from reading the book, after Dwayne killed Betty, he married a close family friend whose husband also worked at Martin Marietta yeah, yeah. and who divorced her husband and, and, you know, married Dwayne. And he recreated her as Betty. Yeah. She didn't look anything like Betty. Betty was this gorgeous, you know, very glamorous blonde, and his second wife was, you know, anything but that. And by the time the cold case rolled around, she, he had, <laughs> uh, you know, recreated is maybe too strong a word, but she didn't look anything like she did when he married her. She, yeah. In fact, she looked like Betty. Yeah. She was a, blonde, yeah. a slim blonde, you know, wearing these impeccable, you know, yeah. outfits and all of that. Yeah. Um because I think he could not live without this woman he had idealized but killed. Um, which gets back to the whole right man yeah, kind of yeah, thing. Yeah. But anyway, I so the second email that I got was from Barb's grandson
2: mm-hmm.
1: who thanked me, you know, for writing the book. Thanked yeah, me yeah. on behalf of his family for for, you know bringing the truth to light, I guess.
0: Yeah, that's what, what another writer friend of mine calls psychic income. Yeah, that's the, to get that. Yeah. That's really good.
1: I mean, I'm, I'm telling you, if a, if a after I got those two emails, if a piano fell on my head, <laughs> I would die happy.
0: <laughs> I understand. You know? All right, now there's something you mentioned in the book that I was fascinated by, and I think listeners, when they pick up the book, will be as well. When the case got reopened, a psycholinguistic analyst, an analyst was took over the written statement that Dwayne had done, and it gave. It's a statement that Dwayne had given immediately after the murder. For a novice like me, how can the language in a written statement, the words that this guy wrote down, prove whether the statement is true or false? Enlighten us on that.
1: Well, this guy you're you're referring to, Wendell Rudisol, yes. who was somebody else I consulted. You know for. I was always looking for context and, you know, experts and all that when I was trying to piece this all together. And I came across this wonderful treatise that I would recommend to anyone interested in this. It's called Lies in Disguise, and it's a treatise on deception, memory, and textual analysis. Uh-huh. And Rudicill has spent 50 years in law enforcement as an investigator and a polygraph examiner. And he, what he does, and he's also been trained in psycholinguistics and psychology. Mm-hmm. And what he does is he, he uses this kind of psycholinguistic examination of the written text yeah. to determine if a statement is true or false. And what he looks at, I mean, when I looked at Dwayne's, uh, I got all the case files after the Cole case was over, and, and I got the, this handwritten statement that Dwayne had made the day of the murder right. when they were you know interviewing him he found the body um and they immediately asked him to make a written statement and i, I was struck by you know misspellings of his children's names and uh-huh. you know bizarre strange handwriting all this stuff and when I spoke to Rudisil about it, you know, that's not at all the kind of thing that he, he looks for. He doesn't look for misspellings mm-hmm. or obvious mistakes. He's looking for syntax and like spatial gaps in the narrative, places where information is missing. Um, you know, it's, it's, he's looking at it from a, to- from a linguistic point of view. Um, and, and that's the sort of lens that he applies to it.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, I thought that part was fascinating. I didn't even know that such a person uh, or such an expertise existed. Well, listen, we're we're about to run out of time, so let me just ask you this, without revealing how what happens with the Cole case. So, at least in the initial context of when Dwayne was arrested after Betty uh, was murdered, did the judicial system just fail? Did it fail Betty?
1: I think it did for sure. Okay. I think what happened is he, you know, he hired of very expensive lawyers with her insurance money. And, you know, they, they just ran roughshod over this DA's office.
2: Yeah. yeah.
1: And and part, one of the things that's evidence of that is that the DA kept throwing, I mean, you could tell this by reading the old file, just that the DA just kept throwing more and more people on the case, more and more assistant DAs, which is never, you know, a sign that you're in control of things. Yeah. And then he took the easy way out. The The defense of that investigator that were hired by mm-hmm. Wayne's lawyers um, came up with some fingerprints, um, and that, you know, they were never <laughs> never properly identified or anything, and then they disappeared as soon as the case was over. Yep. Um, and they, I think that the DA's office used it as an excuse.
0: Yeah.
1: Well, to dump I've, the case. Yeah. You know?
0: Well— it's a great book. Unfortunately, though, that's all the time we have for today. You've been listening to the Writers Forum, and I've been speaking with author Stephanie Kane about her new book, True Crime Redux. Folks, um, pick it up. Uh, I'm sure it's available on Amazon and elsewhere. Stephanie, is there a website or a social media site that folks can go to in order to find out more about the book and about your other writings?
1: Um, my website is writer-kane. That's kcom
0: Okay, great. Stephanie, thanks so much for being on the show.
1: Well, thanks a million for having me.